We're in a study through the book of 2 Samuel, and uh, we're right here on the front end of it, 2 Samuel chapter number 3. We don't have really any time to waste tonight uh, because we've got a lot of text to cover. We're going to cover the entire chapter, and so um, what I'm going to challenge you to do is make sure your copy of God's Word, whether that's digital or right there in, in your hand, um, I, I want to hope that you'll follow along with me the entire message. If you don't, um, then by the time we get to the end of the message, uh, you, you probably will, will be a little bit lost or you'll miss the punch that, that is meant there. And um, the thing about Old Testament narratives that make them challenging sometimes, especially if you're preaching on a Sunday night when everybody's tired, uh, it, sometimes it makes it challenging because you, you preach, try to preach them in their full units, you know, at least a, a you know, a, a good portion of, of the story um, to try to get the author's main intent. And so sometimes that means we kind of get a, get our, I guess, get our shovels out and go to digging for a little bit um, to unearth what, what it is the Holy Spirit has for us in this passage of scripture. And certainly that's going to be the case tonight. And so I hope you'll work along with me. I, I won't waste your time. Um, I'll preach quick and clear, um, and and I hope that that God will speak to our hearts tonight. Someone once said this, man's heart is darker than a thousand midnights. That sounds like a depressing way to start a message. But the the text we're going to look at kind of has that tone. It's going to reveal the sinfulness of man's heart. The statement that I just read couldn't be truer than in 2 Samuel chapter 3. This is a very dark chapter because it highlights one sinful failure after another. We're shown the character flaws of at least five people tonight. David, Abner, Faltiel, the Benjamites, and Joab. What we're going to do for the next few minutes tonight is walk through the chapter and look at how each one of these men failed. In a sinful way. And and when we do, as the listener, you're probably going to get the sense that this is a doom and gloom message. But it's really not, I promise. It's going to be dark for the first 90% of the message. But if you hang on, I think a ray of light is going to break through at the end. But in order to really appreciate the ray of light, you got to first endure the darkness of the text. So let's begin reading in verses 1 through 5. I'm going to warn you, these are a lot of Hebrew names, and I barely mastered English. And I haven't even mastered that. That's an overstatement. Um, and so, anyway, I looked up the, defi- the, the pronunciations of all of these names, and every single, well, quote, Hebrew scholar had a different opinion. So I just took the liberty to have my own opinion. So here we go. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And unto David were sons born in Hebron, and his first was Amnon, and Ahinoam, the, the Jezreelitess. And his second, Chiliab, of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, <sighs> Shephatiah, the son of Abital. Mm. And the sixth, Ethrium, by Egla, David's wife. I like Egla. I can, I can get that one down. These were born to David in Hebron. Here's the first of man's sin in the text. David's selfish marriages. 
The narrative begins with a summary statement of the civil war in Israel between the remainder of Saul's house. Remember, Saul's dead, but the remainder of Saul's house and then David. Though, though the civil war is said to have lasted a long time, the narrative chooses to not dwell on the details of the war. Instead, it simply states that David was growing stronger and stronger and Saul's house was continually weakening. To illustrate this trend, the six sons born to David while he reigned in Hebron are listed. Now, in the ancient world, a king with many sons had the best chance to establish a dynasty. And the larger the number of descendants, the greater a king's stability. But it should be noted that each of these six sons have different mothers. Many of whom their names I could not pronounce. David came to the throne with two wives. Not including his first wife, Michael, who was taken from him by Saul. We'll talk about her in a second. Now he has six. This wasn't uncommon in the ancient world, but it wasn't supposed to be the way of the king of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 17 clearly states that the king of Israel must not take many wives. One of the reasons for the king not taking many wives, according to God, is that his heart will be led astray. But David disregarded God's law. He placed his own selfish interest, whether that be motivated by his sexual interest or his political interest or both, above God's clearly stated word. And, And then the narrator sees fit to include the names of the sons that came out of these selfish marriages because they were going to be key players in future tragedies for David's house. Think about this, Amnon. He raped his half sister. And then he was murdered for it. Absalom, Absalom, David's son, will will usurp David's throne and be murdered by Joab. Adonijah will claim the throne while David is sick in bed and be killed by Solomon. Thus, this list foreshadows the terrible consequences that David will face as a result of his marital failures. Meanwhile, as David was doing all that, the text says Abner was attempting to strengthen himself for the house of Saul. Let's move along. Verse six. And it came to pass while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, wherefore hast thou gone into my father's concubine? Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth and said, am I a dog's head? Which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, to his brethren and to his friends, and have not delivered thee unto the hand of David, that thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? So do God to Abner more also, except, as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba, and he could not answer Abner a word again, because he feared him. Here's the second of man's sin in the text, Abner's political maneuvering. We don't know exactly how Abner was trying to strengthen himself in the kingdom, but we do know by now that Abner didn't have great character. He was crafty. He was selfish. He would do or say anything in order to position himself where he wanted to be. Ishbosheth, the king of the north, who Abner put into place, as we studied last week, questioned Abner, seems like out of the blue, about sleeping with one of Saul's concubines, which, by the way, is a very serious accusation because sleeping with one of the king's concubines was an attempt to take the king's throne. It wasn't clear whether or not Abner was guilty of this, but he got angry when he was questioned about it. Then he 
emphatically denied the charge. In fact, he went off on Ishbosheth. We read it. He totally flipped the script. In his anger, he defected to David. He threatens to give up on trying to preserve the kingdom of Saul. And, to, and he threatens to flip sides entirely. Now, what's interesting is that in the midst of his angry fit, he incriminates himself. I don't know if you noticed that. Have you ever slipped up when you were angry? Yeah, when you're angry, it's not a good time to talk. When emotions are high, wisdom is low. And when you're angry, your mouth probably ought to be just like. In verse nine, he admitted to knowing God's will to install David as king. Yet he's been working to install Ishbosheth instead. You, you look at that at verse nine. So do God to Abner more also. And here's where he slipped. Except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him. How did he know that David was God's chosen king? Well, if you remember back in first Samuel chapter 26, Abner was supposed to be watching over Saul in the middle of the night. And that's when David showed up and he caught both Abner and Saul sleeping and was able to walk up right next to him. He could have chopped their head off if he wanted, but he didn't. But later on that night when Saul woke up and found out that David had been in the camp, he shouted across the hill to David. And in that shout, Saul admitted out loud that David was indeed God's anointed king and Abner was standing right there. Abner heard it. Abner knew it. And yet Abner still fought against it. And so here's my question. Why now, after fighting against David all this time, even though he knew it was God's will, why now is Abner all of a sudden wanting to join David? Is he getting his heart right? No. It's because he's selfish. He's starting to sense strife between he and Ishbosheth. He's starting to sense the, the north weaken and the, and the south strengthen and he wants to get in good with David while he can in hopes that he can slip into a high profile job like he's always held in the northern kingdom under Saul. Hear me church, Abner is a sinful man. He's a selfish man, whether it's fighting against David to become king or whether it's now trying to join David. Everything he does seems to be for his own selfish purposes. We've seen David's failure in his married life. We've seen Abner's failure in his political move, maneuvering. Now we're introduced to a man named uh, Faltiel. Look at verses 12 through 16. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make thy league with me. And behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel unto thee. So he's trying to make a, a, a little peace agreement with David. And he said, Well, I will make a league with thee. But one thing I require thee, that is... Thou shalt not see my face, David's talking here, except thou first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face. And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife Michael, which I espoused to me for an hundred foreskins of the Philistines. We studied that in 1 Samuel. Verse 15, And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even Faltiel, the son of Laish. And her husband went with her along, weeping behind her to Bah, uh, uh, bah Hurim, maybe. Then said Abner unto him, go, return, and he returned. So here we see Faltiel's sinful marriage. Abner wasted no time sending messengers to David, offering his support if they could come to an agreement. But David, was, he was quite willing, but demanded that his first wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, be returned to him. Now get this, David isn't wanting Michael back because he loves her. He wants her back because having Michael would mean that he would be repositioned in the house of Saul, therefore legitimizing him as king over the territory that Saul used to rule. 
It's a political move. David's posturing. He didn't love Michael. He had six wives by this time. David didn't love women, period. But David knows that he has a legal right to Michael because he never divorced her. Secondly, he was driven out of the land by Saul. Study Old Testament law. Michael is still legally his wife. So King Isbosheth has no other choice. He orders that Michael be removed from her new husband and brought to David, her original and legal husband. So in that gut-wrenching scene, Michael's second husband, Faltiel, is distraught like I would be over losing his wife without warning. He follows behind her as far as he could until Abner said, get out of here. Now you might feel sorry for Faltiel. The poor guy was minding his own business when they broke into his house and stole his wife. And he didn't get a say in the matter. No court hearing, no nothing. But before you feel too sorry for Faltiel, you need to realize that marrying Michael was technically against the law of his day. She was still David's legal wife. Therefore, Faltiel failed in that he married another man's wife. Now, maybe he married Michael because he was out for his own glory. Wanted to be part of the king's court. I don't know. Maybe he married Michael because he truly fell in love with the woman. Either way, he married wrong. And now he's suffering for it. By the way, relationships that are formed outside of God's will will often end up this way. Are you hearing me? Sinful relationships invite suffering. That means we can't violate what God has clearly said about relationships and then expect to not pay some kind of price for it. So far, David has failed. Abner has failed. Faltiel has failed. I hope you're studying with me tonight. I know this is a grind, but we got to get through it here. Now we get to verse 17 where Abner is going to try and convince a group of Benjamites to pledge their allegiance to David. Look at their failure in verses 17 through 21. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel saying, you sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spake in the ears of Benjamin. And Abner went also to speak in the ears of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner came to David to Hebron and 20 men with him. And David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. So there's, again, this peace agreement being formed. And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel unto my Lord the king, that they may make a league with thee and that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desires. And David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So if you're following this, Abner seems to be on a PR blitz. He holds this aggressive campaign to get the elders of the tribe of Benjamin to join him in anointing David as king over all Israel. What's interesting is that verse 17 says that they had considering, they had already considered doing this once before. But they chose rather to stay loyal to somebody from their own tribe so that they could get insider favors. That person, of course, was King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. You can go back to 1 Samuel 22 and study when King Saul was sitting under a juniper tree and he was trying to convince the Benjamites to stay loyal to him. And he basically told them, I can do favors for you that David can't do. He said, here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Saul says, David can't do that for you. I'm a Benjamite. I'll do that for you. And out of their own selfish interest, they stayed loyal to Saul. Now Abner goes and he plays on their greed. 
And he plays on their wishwashiness, if that's a word. And he says, why don't you come be loyal to David now? Well, why would we be loyal to David? Well, because he's like really, really good at fighting the Philistines. And you need somebody that's really, really good at fighting the Philistines right now because they are an oppressive enemy of yours. And so sure enough, the Benjamites realized that it was in their best interest to be loyal to David. And they weren't being loyal to David because they were convinced he was God's anointed king. They weren't being loyal to David because they wanted to be in submission to God. They were being loyal to David, watch here, because it now benefited them. Another failure. David's selfish marrying of six wives. Abner's political posturing. Faulty L's sinful relationship with Michael. And now the Benjamite's selfish loyalty to David. The text has another character to highlight. It's the darkest of them all in this chapter. It's Joab. Verse 22. Joab, if you remember, is David's chief military officer. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he was gone in peace. When Joab and all the hosts that was with them were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, Why hast thou done? What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it thou hast sent him away, and he is quite gone? Thou knowest, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy going out and thy coming in, to know all that thou doest. And when Joab was come out of, uh, from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of, of Syrah, but David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him inside the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So we got Joab's unlawful behavior. That's, that's the nicest way I could put it. When Joab heard that David had met with Abner and then let him go out in peace, he was enraged. Hear me. He wasn't just offended. He was totally ticked off. Why? Abner killed his little brother. On top of that, Joab knows that Abner is after his position in David's kingdom. He knows that all this effort to get in good with David is his way of sneaking in and taking his spot. So without getting authorization from David, without David even knowing, Joab sent for Abner. Joab staged what looked like a diplomatic meeting. And when Abner arrived, Joab pulled him to the side for what looked like, well, a private conversation. And you might be thinking, what in the world's Abner thinking? Why is he going to go off privately with Joab when he just killed Joab's little brother? Well, Abner trusted Joab because he just left a meeting with David where they signed a peace treaty. He thought Joab knew this, thought he was safe. Plus, check this out, Hebron, where they were, was a city of refuge. In a city of refuge, you're not allowed to do violence to anyone until you've gone through the due process of law. So Abner's like, I'm cool, I'm safe. We can go to a back alley and talk, it's fine. Yet when Joab got Abner to where no one could see him, Joab took his knife and stabbed Abner under the fifth rib. By the way, the same place where Abner stabbed Joab's little brother with the back end of his spear in chapter 2. Joab killed Abner in cold blood. Now you may be tempted to say, well, that's what Abner deserved. 
He killed Asahel in the same way. He had it coming. But what you have to realize is this was cold-blooded murder. First, it violates God's law for the city of refuge. Joab should have went through due process. Second, Abner killed Asahel in war. It wasn't considered murder by law. Third, it totally undermined the peace treaty that David just agreed to. But because Joab was bent on revenge, he was a bitter man. He didn't care about God's law. He didn't care about the city of refuge. And he didn't care what was best for the nation. He just went after what he wanted in the moment. And he failed miserably in how he dealt with Abner. But there's one more failure that the narrative points out. And that's how David chose to respond to Joab's sin of murder. Remember, David's the king of Judah. He's a leader. I call it David's passive leadership. Let me tell you how most kings would have responded to Joab's behavior. You know what they would have done? They would have executed Joab on the spot. First, because of subordination. Second, because of conspiracy. Third, because of cold-blooded murder. David had already proven he can pursue justice back in chapter 1. An Amalekite messenger came and confessed that he killed King Saul, even though he didn't, but he lied about it. David was so much about justice that David had the Amalekite messenger killed on the spot. We're going to study in the next chapter how David takes two clowns who decided to murder King Ishbosheth unlawfully, and he has them murdered on the spot. David knew the right course of action uh, that, that he should have taken with Joab, but he chose not to. Rather than pursuing justice, which was the king's duty, David just simply pronounced a curse on Joab. Verse 29, let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. Let there not fail from the house of Joab, one that hath an issue or that is a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. Now you may think, especially if you're bent to a gracious personality, well, what's so wrong with David sparing Joab's life? That's up to God to decide, Right? He cursed him. Isn't that enough of a punishment? Well, here's what's wrong with that approach. As the king of Judah, he was the duly appointed magistrate. He he was the embodiment of the government. Romans 13 and verse 4 in your New Testament says that the government hasn't been appointed by God as what Paul calls them, ministers of God, I quote, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Now, we also know what Romans says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But how does God pursue vengeance? Oftentimes, he does that through his ministers, through the government. He doesn't just send a bolt of lightning to take out all the evildoers, all the murderers of the world. He's appointed men and women like David as his ministers for justice. Yet David, who has the authority and the responsibility to fulfill justice, chooses to not do so. Therefore, his passivity and his paralysis as a leader reflects a deep character flaw in him. And it's going to show up over and over and over. It'll show up in how he deals with his son Amnon. It'll show up in how he deals with his son Absalom. And it's going to show up in how he deals right here with his closest military ally, Joab. Catch this problem, church. David is unable to deal in justice with those closest to him. Did you hear that? David is unable to deal in justice with those closest to him. And by the way, sometimes we have the same character flaw. A lot of men can go lead well in the workplace, but they can't lead their own home. 
A lot of pastors can lead well corporately from a pulpit, but they can't have hard conversations. Are you getting me? This character flaw in David allowed Joab to get away with murder. Why? Why was David willing to carry, to to, to pursue justice with an Amalekite messenger, willing to pursue justice in chapter 4 with two criminals, but not with Joab? Look back at verse 22. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. Catch this. Look up here. He didn't want to get rid of Joab because Joab was valuable to him. Joab financed his administration. Joab gave him the money so he could run his court. He could run his kingdom. He could feed his family. Joab was so good at what he did that every time he went out, he would, he, would, he would capture the enemy, get all their spoil. And David was living off Joab's ability to do this. And so David said, I, I, I'm not, not going to sacrifice that financial gain for what's right. It's never right to do wrong. Never right to do wrong. It actually gets worse, though, with how the text ends. Because what David does, and we won't read it. But what he does in verse 31 through 36 is he stages this what seems to be like a media event to make himself look good and hold together those fragile peace accords that he had been, that he made earlier with Abner. He's making it look as though he's done all he could do. He pronounced a curse on Joab. But you could read the rest of the chapter. He allows Joab to be one of the pallbearers for Abner's casket. I don't think you've done all you can do when you let the murderer carry the casket. Do you see what what I meant when I said, or I read you that quote, that man's heart is as dark as a thousand midnights? Now, if it feels heavy in the room, it really should. The chapter's like depressing. Man's sin is spelled out clearly on these pages. David's selfish and politically motivated marriages. Abner's maneuvering for the sake of getting a powerful position in the kingdom. Faltiel's sinful relationship with Michael. The Benjamites' selfish loyalty to David after they realized that he could now benefit them. Joab's vindictive murder of Abner. David's weak passivity in dealing with Joab. And his made-up media event to keep the peace treaty intact. That's a lot of failure. That's a lot of character flaws. That's a lot of selfishness. That's a lot of sin. You might say, Pastor Tyler, you said there's going to be a ray of light. I'm not seeing it. Well, I, I, I had to have help seeing it. But, but, but one, one guy helped me see it that I listened to uh, when I studied this passage. Look at verse 32. And they buried Abner in Hebron. Watch this. And the king, the king lifted up his voice. You say, what's significant with that? Well, for the first time in 2 Samuel, right in the midst of all this darkness and sin, the narrator calls David the king. Before now, David has only been, been referred to as a king or the king of Judah. Now it's a definite article. The king. In fact, in the next five verses, David is mentioned no less than seven times as the king. 
in the midst of all of man's sin, watch here, the narrator seems to be telling God's people who would later read this to not worry and to not get discouraged because God's plan for his kingdom and his king has not been thwarted. What that shows us is that in spite of everything else that seems to be unraveling because of man's sin, God's plan is still intact. In spite of David's sin, in spite of Abner's sin, in spite of Joab's sin, in spite of it all, God is still at work. That's what this whole unit is about. Chapter 1 through the first part of chapter 5. God is establishing his kingdom and his king. And even man's failure and man's stupidity and man's selfishness and man's darkness is not going to get in the way of God's purposes. See, here's the ray of light tonight. Man's sin is great, but God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater than David's sinful marriages. God's grace is greater than Abner's selfish manipulation. God's grace is greater than the Benjamite's selfish loyalty. God's grace is greater than Joab's selfish murder. And God's grace isn't just on display in their lives in this one chapter. We're going to study how this isn't the last mistake that King David makes. But in spite of making even bigger mistakes than he did in this chapter, God is going to continue to use David. You can see how God is going to use Joab, the murderer, in some mighty ways in David's kingdom. In fact, Joab became the captain of David's mighty men. You're going to see how that that God even used the Benjamites later on in Israel's history to side with with the South. They're they're a northern tribe, but they would stay loyal to the South when another civil war broke out. The point is that God continued to use these men despite themselves because God is a gracious God. As I thought about it this week, I came to this conclusion. It shouldn't shock us that God uses broken people. You know why? He has to. Who else is there to pick from? We're all broken. Every person that God has used has been a broken sinner that God in his grace decided to use for his glory and for his good purposes in the world. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God wants to use you in spite of you. It tells me that even though we sin and though we sometimes take two steps forward and one step back in our Christian life. And even though we show the same selfishness in our decisions that those in our text have shown, God's grace is greater. We've all made selfish relational choices like David. We've all demonstrated selfish posturing to get what we want like Abner. We've all made selfish decisions and then shocked whenever we reap the consequences of those like faulty hell. We've all responded in vindictiveness and revenge toward those who have hurt us like Joab. We've all overlooked sin in ourselves and in others. We've tolerated it because it's too inconvenient to deal with it like David. Yet God still has enough grace to forgive us and use us for his good purposes. Man, I need some more amens on that. Preaching my guts out about the grace of God and you're looking at me like I'm at a funeral. I said God's grace is greater. It's greater than your sin. It's greater than my sin. I say that in the authority of Romans 5 verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
Meaning sin may abound in your heart and in your life, but God's grace can abound in greater measures than your sin. That's a profound thought that blows my mind. The only sin that disqualifies you from being used by God in his kingdom is the sin that you refuse to repent of and forsake. God's grace stands ready to forgive you and place you in sweet fellowship with him again if you'll bring yourself to a posture of humble repentance. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Hallelujah to his name. Would you answer this question for me? What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds, exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace. Grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. A week from this Tuesday, we'll come together as a church for the Lord's Supper, for communion. I hope you can sense in my spirit that I'm trying to infuse within you a a recognition of God's good grace in your life tonight. Because when we assemble for the Lord's Supper on that very, very, it's a sacred meal. In fact, Paul got on to the church at Corinth for not treating it in a sacred manner. And so as we assemble in a week from this Tuesday, and we remember the body and the blood of Jesus that was spilt on Calvary for us, you need to remember this tonight. That God's grace wasn't just for David. It wasn't just for Abner. And it wasn't just for Joab. Are you hearing me, friend? God's grace is for you. God's grace is for me. And we're going to study 2 Samuel. There's some high points and there's a lot of low points in 2 Samuel. And you're going to think by the time we conclude this study, well, God's grace has done run out. But it hasn't. His grace is never on empty. Will you hear me? Man's sin will always be great. Have you noticed lately our world's not getting better? It will always be great, but because of God's grace, his purposes will never be thwarted. His kingdom will continue to expand. His gospel will continue to go forth. His church will prevail. The gates of hell won't even beat it. The Bible will continue to change lives. The good news will change eternal destinies. 
Why? Because God's grace is always greater than man's sin. And so when you go home and you turn on the news tonight, or you look on Facebook, and you're tempted to get all down in the dumps because of the wicked world in which you live, and it's going to be even more wicked when your, your kids are growing up and all of this. And I, it scares me too. But us Christians, we don't need to get discouraged. We don't need to lose hope. I mean, we aren't really, at least in liberal Kansas, those of us here, we're kind of sheltered in this sanctified bubble. We aren't living in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Somebody kills my brother, I'm going to kill you. We're not really living there. But a lot of parts of our world are there. And if you're not careful, you're going to just be doom and gloom, pessimistic, sour, cranky all the time. You don't need to be. You are saved. You're regenerated. You are redeemed. You're forgiven. You're adopted. You're a child of the King. You're made holy in the sight of God. If you die right now and you know Jesus, you'll be in the presence of your Savior for all of eternity. Why are you sad tonight? God's grace is greater. His church will prevail. His gospel will continue to change lives. And hear me closely. I'll be done. I'll be done. You might be here tonight. And and you, your life right now, might be more represented by the sinful failure of those five characters. And so you're really thankful for the grace of God. But maybe tonight the first thing you need to do is you just need to get on your knees at an altar. And you need to repent of the sin that the Holy Spirit convicted you of tonight. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe for for some of you, you're like, you know what, God's, I'm in a really good place. I'm not sinless, but but I feel like I'm right with God and about every area of my life that I can think of right now. And I I feel like I'm walking close to him. You know what you need to do? You need to get on your knees tonight and say, thank you, God, for your amazing grace. It shouldn't even have to be a pep rally. It should be, you know what, pastor's right. Man's sin is great, but God's grace is greater. Can we get on with the invitation already? I need to sing about it. I need to pray about it. I need to worship him for it. I got to do something just to respond to this truth that God's grace is greater than man's sin. Stand to your feet, every head bowed.